Hi, welcome to another episode of Identity Unveiled with me, Shweta Palai, and my co-host, Diane Yu. At Identity Unveiled, we are passionate about giving voice to the stories behind the Asian American women breaking barriers and to tapping into experts that can provide tips, guidance, and the latest trends so that other Asian American women can live their best life on the path to breaking their own barriers. As the last episode of the year, we thought it would be fitting to end with a story about legacy. Meet Claudia G. Vassar, president of Houston Botanic Garden. The G family is known as one of the first Chinese immigrants to arrive in Houston. They became famous restaurateurs and entrepreneurs, and their professional success has stayed strong across subsequent generations. Now, if you thought your family was big, G family reunions are nearly 500 people. Today, the G family is a famous name in the Chinese American Houston network and highly active in the city's political and philanthropic landscape. Claudia G. Vassar's father is Harry G., a well-known immigration attorney in Houston. We spoke with Claudia about the pressures of growing up with the G legacy, her dual identity as a German and Chinese American, and her spirit of giving back to the community. Claudia has faced immense challenges as president of the Houston Botanic Gardens. The first year was met with unprecedented events of the COVID pandemic and the historical deadly Texas winter storm. Her leadership in the face of these challenges speaks to a unique resiliency and determination that many of us would benefit to model as we traverse our own life uncertainties and intentions. One of the things I remember you talking about was how your grandfather arrived here in Houston during around the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so he came during a time when Asians and Chinese were not allowed to come to the United States. They did have an investor visa. Um, so America has always been open to people bringing money. And there were investors that would come and run businesses and then bring their sons. And there was one such investor who came and brought my grandfather as his son in order to come and work here and then send money home to his family in China. So that's when my grandfather came to the U.S. and he was all over the country and then ended up in Texas. And was my family is one of the first Chinese families to settle in Texas. And so he brought his wife uh, from China and my father. And then after that, lots of people from their village and elsewhere in China that would come, they would be the connection to help people get started here in Houston as they built their businesses and um, started coming to the United States and working here. There's a very entrepreneurial background in your family. Absolutely. So uh, my grandfather had it and then my father had it and so and still has it. He started his own law firm and has been quite successful. I'm very proud of my father for that. And certainly with that. And then on, on the other side, my mother also came by herself from Germany in her 20s as an immigrant to the States and also, you know, very independent, striking out on her own. So I think I definitely get some of that entrepreneurial from my parents and and certainly from my grandparents and, and the whole legacy as well. Yeah. So your mother is? My mother's German. 
that became a real interesting part of my identity growing up in a time when most people were trying to be American. So right now there's a lot of celebration of people's heritage and where they're from. And people I think are really starting to embrace that and recognize the strengths of our heritage and different cultures in the US. But I grew up in a time when everyone was really trying hard to assimilate. And so I um, had a Chinese father and a German mother and grew up in American schools and really had an interesting time thinking about who I was and what my identity was because I didn't quite fit in with the Asians who whose parents were more recent to immigrants because my father came when he was two. And so he still grew up you know, with quite a bit of an American upbringing, one of the only Asians everywhere that he went throughout his life. And so I didn't quite fit in with the my fellow classmates who had that experience at home where they had a really strong Asian culture at home. And because again, my mother is from Germany and she had a lot of German customs that she reared us with. And so we didn't quite fit in with the Americans either because my German upbringing was a little bit different. And so I sort of straddled between these two groups of people always feeling a little bit like I was an outsider. And I think one of the real uh, important moments in my life in thinking about who I am and what my place is and what my identity is, given this diverse background that I had personally, was when I got my Rice application in order to apply for college and they would have the different boxes on there, you know, what's your race? And it was white, black. It's um, the most annoying thing, right? Like on the 2020 census, when they ask that question about what's your race, it's like, well, which one? Like, I think for the first time I said Indian American, I used to click off Asian, but I wasn't considered Asian. Right, right. It's kind of funny, right? Like thinking about what they identity. Well, back then you used to have to choose one. So then I always felt like I had to choose between my father or my mother. And so it always was this really awkward moment. And so the first time that I had a box was my application to Rice University. And I mean, I remember showing it to my brother and sister and being really excited and saying, we have a box now, we, you know, like we fit. Someone is recognizing that there is a thing that's a biracial. And so that was a really important thing. You know, I have cousins in our family that are half Asian, half white, and I see the struggle that they go through, similar to what you're talking about. So this yeah. is, we'd love to learn more about, you know, how was it like growing up as bicultural and what are some of these issues? Was there a cultural struggle for you in identity? Yeah, I think the real hard part about it, and I mean, I think there's this really interesting conversation going on about what is the identity of America, first and foremost. You know, how is it that we celebrate the all the diversity of people that are here and specifically in Houston, such a diverse city, while at the same time have some kind of a unifying identity as Americans and just tacking American on the end of all of our different ethnicities doesn't really do it. And I think, you know, all of that is sort of, you know, I think a lot of people that are either biracial or multiracial um, struggle with that even more deeply. So how do we celebrate all the different pieces of who we are, especially when there are these wonderful groups that form around a cultural identity? Because I think the um, the hard part then for those of us that are biracial is, can we also feel included in some of those groups as well? Because 
we're a little bit diluted, right? So we're, you know, for me, it's it's half Asian, half white, but I think I've certainly heard it about my Black friends, like, are you Black enough, right? So it's like, are you Asian enough? And I think that makes it a really, it can be a real hard thing, especially when I was younger and not really feeling like I fit in a lot. I think as I've gotten older, I've been able to do a better job at really embracing and celebrating both and, and realizing that it's not an either or. What's the strength that your multiracial identity brings to you? I think that the what my multiracial identity has really done for me in a way that's maybe different from somebody who comes from two parents with the same culture is really learning how to see people with different values and different backgrounds and respect and value that. And so when I look at the world, particularly the divisiveness that we see all around us, I think my multiracial background has really helped me see that, you know, I have two different cultures that might approach the same problem in different ways. And I can see that they're both valuable and that they're both inspired by important reasons and rationales and a value system that might be different. And so I can respect both of those different opinions and respect the people behind them. And I think in a lot of ways that has really helped me be able to bridge the gap and be able to talk to people who are often on different sides of issues. I've had a number of people just really reflect as I've engaged, whether it's in social media or in conversation, and have really said that they see that I'm able to speak to both sides, which unfortunately I think is really rare in in society these days. And so I think that a lot of it comes from having that background and witnessing it and seeing it and experiencing it firsthand. Your father is a huge part, uh, one of the biggest legacies in Houston, especially in the Asian American, not even Chinese, but the Asian American community. Tell me more about the G Family Association. And did you ever feel, you know, pressure to continue that legacy? Well, let's start with just what is the G Family Association? Yeah, absolutely. So there are family associations, and and I don't know the full extent of them, but certainly across uh, China, and these family associations are are all over the United States. So our G Family Association in Houston is actually connected to a larger family association, and so we have you know smaller groups in different cities across the country. And it was a time for G's to get together and celebrate important times of year. So we get together for the Lunar New Year and have a big banquet. And we also believe that we have a role in giving back to the community. So our association also does scholarships for education scholarships for primarily Asians that are pursuing educational opportunities, whether it's college or advanced degrees or or anything else to to give back. So growing up as a kid, this was very much a part of what we did. And that really was a great way, particularly during this time of assimilation in many ways, where I was pulled into understanding how big our family association was and how big the family here in Houston was and to get connected with all of my cousins and aunts and uncles and and to really be together and and build those relationships as well. I bet you have so many stories of your from childhood about the traditions you kept with these reunions, Christmases. I mean, let's start with even how many people are coming out to these reunions. 
Yeah, so our Lunar New Year banquet is usually about 400. It has been up to 500 people, mm-hmm. and it's family and, and guests. Um, we have honorary G's as well. What has been really nice, I think, because so many from our family have been involved politically, Mayor Anise Parker has been has become an honorary G because she's come so often to the banquet, um, and a number of politicians and judges will come in part because of Herbert G, another one of my father's cousins who's um, who is very active. And so it's a really fun gathering. And at the banquet, we'll celebrate the scholarship winners. First and foremost, um, we'll celebrate um, birthdays and births. So anybody who turns 80, because that's such an auspicious age in the Chinese culture, we do a real big celebration for our elders. We'll usually have a lion dance and uh, Dance Asia America will come and perform. So we, we usually try to do a number of things to really celebrate the Chinese community. So it's a really fun, really large gathering and certainly something that we look forward to question about marriage. So I less in Indian culture, you know, when my husband married me, he married the family. <laughs> you have a very big family to marry into. How do you keep your marriage? How do you keep it, your, your marriage? You know, you've obviously been married for how many years now? Remind me again, you had told me Eight, before. 18 years. 18 years. What's your secret? <laughs> <laughs> It takes work all the time. (laughs) I had somebody early on said that, you know, marriage is waking up every day and deciding to be married. And so that there is that, I think, you know, making sure that you continue to have fun and remember what brings you together. And then, you know, I, David is wonderful and incredibly loving towards my entire family and being a part of it. My sister lives across the street. My brother is less than 10 minutes away. My parents are maybe 12 minutes away. So he gets quite a bit of my immediate family in addition to the extended family. And so, yeah, it's making, you know, again, making time for one another and and remembering um, very fundamentally what we have in common. Claudia, growing up in that environment, did you ever feel that like the pressure to, to kind of carry that torch forward. I mean, you went in, I know you went into law was one of your reasons for going into, into the legal profession driven by expectations that your parents had of you? Well, I should say there probably were those expectations. I think I felt it though less as an expectation that they had of me and more of a responsibility. I think the way that they reared me was much more of a, you have been given these opportunities and we and others have fought for you to have these opportunities. Therefore, you have a responsibility to make the most of them and to give back to the community. That it wasn't an expectation that I'm going out to succeed for me or for my family, but Mm -hmm. because I have been given much, I have much to give to others. And Mm -hmm. so I think it was more responsibility than an expectation, but I'm certain the undercurrents, there's probably some expectation there too. So you so you went so after you graduated high school then you went to you went to Rice and then then you went to law school. So your first career was in in the legal profession, correct? Okay. Yes. Were you in private practice at that time or did you join like a larger law firm? 
Yep. So I went to Rice for undergraduate and I went to the University of Virginia for law school. And when I started practicing, I came back to Houston. I worked at a large firm. It was a regional firm. At the time, it was called Gardeer. Um, and I was there for about a year and then had an opportunity to go to a small firm, which really was where my heart was. And I think as you pointed out, I have an entrepreneurial spirit and was really looking for a place where I could really connect with clients in a different way than in the large firm where I could go grow a practice where I had more responsibility and a diversity of practice and not in the larger firms you tend to do sort of get a little bit more specialized and so I could have a more broad practice but it also really afforded me the opportunity to continue to be involved in the community and have more of a balance in my life to be able to to continue with that that expectation or responsibility that I had from growing up. And so, yeah, so then I practiced in a smaller transactional firm after uh, I left Gardeer. Then you went from the, the legal profession and you, did you go straight into the nonprofit sector? I did. So when I went to law school, it actually goes back to the, the my, uh, my, my impetus for going to law school. I really thought that I would be working in the international social justice. So again, I think this desire in my heart to be a part of having a strong impact on the world and giving back. And I really thought that that's the world that I would be going into. I ended up back in Houston with really strong desire to be with family and be near family, both mine and my husband's. And that work um, doesn't happen here as much. And so I continued my work in the community while I was in private practice, but I think my heart was always in how can I spend more time in the social sector, really spending my professional time having this impact that I um, desired in, in, in changing the world for good for others. Mm -hmm. And so I left the practice of law when my third child was born and it ended up being a nice time. I had already had some other people in the firm recovering my clients while I was out for maternity leave. And so it kind of um, ended up being a nice time to transition. So I started working in the nonprofit sector as an intentionally interim executive director of nonprofits. So I saw that there was a need in the nonprofit industry for this transition period for leaders to come in and help position nonprofits, prepare them for their next leader, and also help use that time as an opportunity to think about capacity building or change management. And so I started doing that and I worked for a number of different organizations in a couple of different sectors. And the last one was the Houston Botanic Garden. And I started as their interim executive director. And after a year, they asked me to stay on. And I love the project and have real and a real interest in a high curiosity for learning. And again, this organizational capacity building and change management. And I knew that essentially a startup of a large cultural institution would give me an opportunity to continue to do that. And I, I am just 100% behind the mission and creating this incredible place that will have an impact on my children and their children and generations to come. So it's been a really wonderful opportunity for me. Well, now you're breaking barriers with taking on this leadership role with, with the Houston Botanic Garden. And for our listeners, of course, that don't know what that is, could you tell us a little bit about the Houston Botanic Garden? Absolutely, but be careful. I could talk about it for hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the Houston Botanic Garden opened in September of 2020, and uh, Houston really is one of the cities that didn't have a significant botanic garden like cities all across the world that have um, significant botanic gardens. I know you have listeners from all over who might have favorite botanic gardens in their back in their backyards, but it was something that Houston didn't have. And so there are some people who had this idea for decades, and they signed a lease with the city of Houston for some property in 2015, and that turned into this wonderful oasis in the city where people can come to enjoy being in the outside, where they can come to learn about plants and gardening, where they can experience all the healing benefits of being outside, particularly right now during this pandemic. It's um, really important that we have um, wonderful places to go that are outside. And we have collections of plants. And so you can sort of think of it like a zoo for plants where we are conserving rare and exotic plants and also helping people see the the incredible diversity of plants that exist, learn about them, love them, and change their lives to help take care of plants and our planet. Mm. So what do you feel is going to be the the most challenging for you as being a woman leader of, of of a very unique new organization, nonprofit organization here in the fourth or fifth largest city. I forget what Houston is at now. Fourth. Are we fourth now? Okay. We're fourth. We're, we're, we're fighting with Chicago for third. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think the challenges that I face are similar challenges to leaders everywhere. How do I lead in an inclusive and equitable way? And how do I lead in a way that really inspires everyone to do their best, be their best and have the best outcomes in whether it's the, my team, my paid team, or the volunteers here, or the many partners that we have? How do we respond to the challenges that are facing our country? And whether it is the equity and justice that we're facing, or its resiliency as a botanic garden, where we hope that we can also have participate in the conversation around resiliency, our changing planet, and um, what does that mean? And how can we help to create a more sustainable place for humans in the long term? So how can I make sure that I continue to have a voice in all of these different issues as I and our organization are trying to have a strong impact in these issues that we're facing? And then continuing to have a place where I can build relationships with the people and the organizations that have the resources and the the power to really um, be able to create change and making sure that I continue to participate in that. When you come from a family that has given so much to the community and you are now traversing a, a career that is giving to the community as well, How do you take time to put yourself first? It is such an important question, especially for women today, to make sure that as we are so driven and have these great opportunities to do well in our professions and in our homes that we often forget about ourselves. So I've had a couple of things that have been, I think, really instrumental in my life. One, I have incredible mentors and I have mentors who are looking at me for my whole person and they are certainly doing everything they can to help me succeed professionally, but they are also 
very much care deeply about me as a human and as a person and have always made sure that I'm also taking care of myself. That is a really big thing. And then the other part is just something that so you have to learn yourself as much as everybody tells you to put yourself first. It's so hard to really do that. And I had a cancer battle recently and that really helped open my eyes to making sure that I prioritize myself and really make sure that I take the time to take care of my physical and my mental health so that I can be the best that I can be um, both professionally and in my family life. So for anybody that's listening, I really hope that you don't have to have your own (laughs) physical health battle in order to get there because it is a really difficult and challenging battle, but it certainly can be done. And what it taught me was you know, really being able to lean on incredible people around me. And whether that's professionally or personally, other people also want the opportunity to shine. And so it's sometimes stepping back to take care of ourselves also gives somebody else the opportunity to step up and be able to shine as well. I think it's such an important point. Oftentimes, as women who are are high achievers, you know, they get there not because they went at it alone. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that um, we all have so many people that support us and help us to get there. You know, my husband is very much a partner in life and he is incredible at doing things that not all women are fortunate to have a husband to step up and do, you know, so really critical. You've heard already about my parents and how much support they've been. And I have been really fortunate to have people who have stepped up to be mentors to me and who have continuously been people that I can call on to help me through. You know, sometimes I just have decision fatigue and I'm tired. It may not be a really difficult thing that I'm struggling with. I'm just exhausted and to have someone to lean on. But then also there's really complex issues and questions to, to have a group of people to lean on. I have also been involved in a group of nonprofit leaders that get together to work together and support one another. And in the Botanic Garden world is really incredible network. Botanic Gardens, because what we're doing is conserving the genetics of different plants, we often share with one another the different plants that we have so that if we're hit by a blight, that plant will still continue to exist somewhere else since we have a living collection. And I think that spirit of collaboration and sharing has really been important in in botanic gardens supporting one another and there's an incredible network there so for and I've seen it in so many aspects of my life different people that have really helped me and supported me and and I think that's what makes it fun too as an Asian woman you led a law firm you you know you worked in a big law firm and now you're leading a nonprofit. you're the president and general counsel of the Houston Botanic Garden where again that theme of like connections and relationships is is really important. How do you feel coming back to the fact that you are an Asian woman? Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel like when you're building those relationships, those connections, were there moments where the relationships you're trying to build with people, they looked at you and you look different? Was there ever those moments and how did you handle that? Yeah, I think probably what I have internalized and felt the most of, you know, hey, pay attention to me, you know, kind of feeling on the outside, that feeling has 
the part about being Asian that I, that I think that I've noticed is that people look at me and think of me as young also. And I think mm. some of that has to do with the appearance of being Asian, being petite. And so I think people, you know, look and don't realize the amount of experience and the amount of knowledge that I might have because they look and they think, oh, are you, you know, um, are you this little girl, young, you know, <laughs> Asian woman, you know, trying to advocate or, you know, and, and being different and kind of being the outside in. I think what has really helped me navigate that one is the example that my father has set and the way that he has ingrained himself in building connections and network and watching him. And he included us as young people very much in his world and seeing what his adult world was like. And I know that not a lot of young people or children had that experience, but when he would bring business people home prior to going out for entertaining them or clients, he always introduced us to them. He always expected us to have a, engage in a conversation with adults. And so I did learn some of that from him as, at a young age also. And, and that certainly helped. And then the other piece of it that I think is really important is my education and my pedigree. So I'm grateful for the opportunity of having been able to go to Rice. And I think that a lot of people really do see that and it opens up a lot of doors I think I was just talking about some of these types of conversations with my sister. And I think another thing that has been really important that I'm not sure that I would have identified myself is that my parents also were quite ingrained in American culture in a lot of ways. And so one of the things that I did growing up is my mother loves baseball and we would watch baseball together and my mom even score kept. And so this is something that has been something that I've enjoyed. And so learning to enjoy sports when I was working as a real estate lawyer, which is a heavily male-dominated, heavily white male-dominated industry, I can recall going to a luncheon where one of my clients said, you know, everyone starts chatting and, you know, I feel a little bit like an outsider because they're talking about things that in their social circles are the things that they do until my client said, oh, well, they started talking about baseball. And he says, you know, this one knows more about rice baseball than anybody I know. And <laughs> so some of that comes from, you know, learning the, you know, having the cultural knowledge, right, allows me to enter into that one could certainly be on the outside of if you didn't have those experiences or that knowledge. And so I am grateful to people who also have reached out and welcomed me into the circle, right? Because in that moment, there was a very clear acknowledgement by my client of me being a little bit of an outsider and him bringing me in as well to be a part of that conversation so that others at the table would view me a little bit differently. And so, um, so I think some of it is being able to engage in conversations that other people are having, but then also certainly people reaching out and welcoming others in. And I think, you know, from the background that I have, it also speaks to me about the responsibility that I have to do the same for others as well. Coming from the legacy that you do, what's the legacy that you want to leave? I think that my identity is my family as well as my identity is me. And so, so I don't think it's necessarily that I need to create something so different 
but I can celebrate the family that I come from while at the same time, I'm still a unique person. And I think it's sort of the same way that I view that we are Asian and we're American. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. So I think that's really important. As we've had this conversation, I've really been you know, focusing on what is it that my parents and grandparents have hoped for me in thinking about what my responsibility is. And I think that really feeds a lot into what I hope my legacy is. I hope that people will see that I have been able to help others and give back in a way that is reflective of the opportunities that I've had. I hope that the people that I come into contact with will see me as a person who inspires them to, to also give and do and be the best that they can. So I guess I hope that people see me as a caring and inspiring person. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the stories on our podcast as much as we enjoy unveiling them to you. A lot of time and detailed editing goes into bringing these stories. A big thank you to our sponsor, Renica Digital. Renica Digital is a full-service digital marketing boutique offering cloud, web, app, and social media services. If interested in serving as an ally to help us continue bring stories to the spotlight, amazing Asian American woman trailblazers, please visit us at www.identityunveiled.org and reach out to us for sponsorship and donation opportunities. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Until next time, be safe and be well.